0: It's time for On the Couch with our resident psychologist Jane Enter, exploring life and caring for our mental and spiritual well being on Bay FM 99.9. Welcome to our regular on-the-couch segment with local psychologist Jane Enter, who's based at First Light Healthcare, Byron Bay. In the first edition last week, we started a conversation on the issue of having loved ones and people close to us with completely different views to us on the COVID-19 pandemic and vaccines. It continues to be a subject dividing families, friendships, and our community. We've had a big response to last week's conversation and we'll spend today's episode teasing that out some more because it really is affecting all of us. Jane enter. great to speak to you once again.
1: Thanks for having me back Fern.
0: Look before we get into it, hooray, (laughs) we are out of lockdown. (laughs) that is no doubt a massive relief for everyone what difference will it make for our mental health here on the north coast
1: i think there'll be a variety of responses and i'm already you know i spent yesterday at work and there was a variety of responses even in the the group that i saw Some people were really excited. They were especially happy for their children who have really struggled and suffered, not seeing their peers and feeling isolated and not being able to play with other kids. And some people were like wary, as in I'm tired of being locked up, closed down, I would like some certainty. And some people were weary, as in Weary of, Mm. like, how long is this gonna last, and how trustable it is? Is it? And some people were like, "Let the good times roll." (laughs) So I think, in terms of mental health, I read a wonderful article from a psychologist in Melbourne who spoke about the cycles of stress, and this is another cycle: we're out. How long will it last? People are scared, you know, one case and we're all back. So no one is taking anything for granted. It feels good, but how long will the good times last?
0: Good question. Well, the sun's back and it really feels like summer, so that's another positive as well. Great timing. We got very good feedback, Jane, about our chat last week, but some people felt that I could have probed you a little bit further on some of the things that you said. So I'd like to take you back there today. We were talking about people who are holding some extreme views on the coronavirus and vaccines. And I do understand the position you're in as a psychologist, of course, who you've got clients coming to you, some of them with these very views. So you do have to be watchful and mindful about what you say in these interviews. But I had someone say to me, just because people might have a valid basis for having some of these views due to whatever happened to them or whatever they experienced in the past, as you said, doesn't make their views valid or true. What do you say to that?
1: I say valid or true for who? Because that person has that belief and it's valid and true for them. Whether it holds up in the external world, I'm working with that person where that view came from, what it means for them, how it came to be formed, how it shapes them. That's their validity and truth. And I've never found it helpful to say to people, hey, you're talking absolute nonsense because I don't think that's a useful thing to do. I think it's much more useful to find out why they think that way. Where did that view come from? How do they make meaning out of it? I think that's a much better approach.
0: One person said, When people express such extreme views that have no basis in fact and move into the realm of paranoia and delusion, shouldn't we be pointing that out to them? It's not about labelling people.
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to talk a little bit about labelling. I'm not a fan, unless it's for a court report or an insurance document. And why is that? Because labelling is simply a set of criteria that professionals have to try and understand various categories of behaviour and mental health issues. It's not a deadly accurate thing. Years ago, being gay was labelled as a mental health disorder. So were many other things. Society changes, labels change. I think what's much more useful is dealing with symptoms and experience. So, if you take the word paranoia, which is about false beliefs, just say I'm Richard Dawkins sitting here and I'm not so keen on the whole God story. I'm an atheist. Just say I was that. So you come in, you tell me you believe in God, and I say, you're paranoid, you've got a false belief. I don't think that's going to go very well. So I think one has to think about, Where do these beliefs come from? So, in a prison system, it is healthy to have a degree of paranoid behaviour to protect you. You think the world isn't out to get you, you will not last long in some of those settings. When you feel um, scared and vulnerable in the world, paranoid thinking makes you feel safer and as if you're doing something to protect yourself. So often paranoia has a protective function. Working out how that has manifested and developed and what the function of it is in the person's life is a much more useful way to me than to just tell them you're crazy.
0: So we need a better understanding of this. Some people might say, are we helping them by pretending that their views are right or carry the same weight as views that are based on evidence, evidence and that you can back up?
1: I think the word pretending is interesting because if you are truly curious about someone and you want to know what has happened and why they think that, I don't think that's pretense. In a therapy session or when you're talking to loved ones, I think being curious about how those views developed and understanding them is a much more um, positive and unifying way to go so that you can ask questions and raise doubt and be curious. And I'll give you an example of this. A long time ago, I saw a person who was really, really paranoid they were absolutely distressed and believed very strongly their phone was being tapped, they were being followed, that the special power somewhere had the ability to explode their phone in their hand. And, you know, it took them a very long time to come to my office because they had to take many different routes because they were being followed. And we had a very trusting relationship. And I said, "Okay. Now, I could have spent a a while telling him that, you know, you're a bit crazy, that's not happening. And I thought, you know what, it's not going to really help. What's more useful is for me to say, hey, why don't we go down the street together? I'll walk behind you. I'll be the one following And I will tell you if there's anyone else following you. And if I don't see anyone, do you believe me enough that we need to then go and get you some extra help? He agreed. Of course, we went for a long walk. There was no one following him. He believed me. We got him the help. I thought that was a much more useful thing to do than argue about his belief Mm. system. So I think, you know, you have to be practical and work with who you are talking to. And if it's a family member, work with who you've got.
0: And that connection was able to really turn him around because he trusted you and you showed him, not just told him.
1: Hmm. And I think trust and having that level of trust with somebody is your best basis For them to know, if you're questioning them or disagreeing with them, it's because you love them and care about them. And they trust that, that you have their best intentions. Mm
0: -hmm. Because with a lot of people um, that hold these views to that extent and, uh, you know, have some paranoia, it's because that trust was broken in the past. You said something you said last week. We'll come back to that point. Something you said also last week, is that nobody really knows the truth about what's going on. And there are many questions and unknowns. But the best possible scientific knowledge today, as we just heard on our program earlier from uh, Professor Dominic Dwyer, who's a a leading Australian expert in virology and infectious diseases. He was part of the uh, World Health Organization team who went to Wuhan to investigate the origins of the virus the best evidence tells us that this coronavirus most likely came from a bat to humans and probably even via another animal. That's the best knowledge right now. And he said that vaccines are the main way out of this. It's all we got right now. There's nothing better. That's the overwhelming medical scientific consensus right now. Now, how can someone who thinks that this virus doesn't even exist for example, or someone that thinks it was created in a lab for the purpose of controlling us through vaccines and getting us all vaccinated so big pharmaceutical companies can make millions and millions of dollars, how can that view be given the same weight as one based on the best possible scientific evidence from experts who have devoted their entire lives to these fields of studies?
1: Well, clearly it can't. And I wish I had said that differently last week. What I wish I'd said was that we are a work in progress and we're living in uncertain times. It reminds me this current pandemic of the AIDS, HIV epidemic back in the early 80s. Because I remember, you're too young, Fern, but I remember that, you know, you couldn't visit your loved ones that they were in these isolated wings in infectious diseases, hospitals, that people were in full, you know, PPE because they were worried that the virus would jump into them. It completely ended the swinging 60s and 70s. You know, people became very scared of being sexually promiscuous. And, you know, over time, we have learned to live with it. We've got antiretrovirals. The fact that your dentist these days wears gloves and masks and all of those things came back from that era. So we adjusted and we learned and we found treatment and we managed it and I think that this pandemic is very much like that. We are in the early phases of discovering what it is, how it evolves Of course, in the beginning, when the vaccines were introduced, they were found to be X, Y and Z percentage effective. But as the virus has mutated, the percentage has changed. And that's going to keep happening until we get a really big, strong handle on it, like what happened with HIV.
0: Mm. Absolutely. But look, I have noticed that there is a general devaluing of expertise, Uh, And I guess that's another sign of the high level of distrust out in the community. We talked about trust or the lack of it among people who don't subscribe to, you know, the consensus view of all of this for the want of a better expression. And we also talked about the role of trauma. Just remind us how you work through this with people.
1: Look, trauma is a very complicated phenomenon. There's complex trauma which is the trauma that happens to young children at critical stages of development that then shapes their whole neurological, physiological personality development. It has long-term, far-reaching effects. There are things like, you know, childhood sexual abuse, physical violence, those sorts of things. And then there's a simpler kind of trauma where you're in a car accident and something dreadful happens and you keep reliving that car accident. And then there's war trauma where you're going to battle and you've got the famous story of Vidal Sassoon in London after the war, a car backfires, he drops to the ground because he thinks he's back just by that sound. He goes back there even though he can see he's in London. So that's how powerful trauma responses are. They are um, part of the primitive brain system. You have a amygdala in your brain. It's an alarm system. It goes to your limbic system and you have a huge response. So in this current environment, I haven't had one client in my office who hasn't had some traumatic experience in their lives which influences how they're responding currently to the idea of vaccination or trusting authority and the hippocampus which is the part of the brain that makes meaning their hippocampus makes a different meaning to things like forcible being asked sorry to be vaccinated or being encouraged they have doubts about authority and doubts about whether they're being told the truth and they're frightened and that's what I said in my first interview with you whether you're going to get the vaccine you're scared whether you're not going to get the vaccine you're scared and you've got to work with what that means and what how it you know affects you understanding that then you can go from a different place.
0: So give us an example of how you're working through that with uh, your clients, speaking generally.
1: Um, Well, first of all, you find out what, what they're frightened of and why. And where did that come from? And what is their response like? And how does it function for them? And is it useful? and how is it currently affecting them and a lot of people say to me look I'm up all night researching finding information and they're tired and they're anxious and then we might discuss well is that research late at night actually like showing you a horror movie when you actually need to switch your mind off calm down and go to sleep because when you've had sleep you get a better perspective of everything. So it's working with the symptoms, the effects on them, and trying to get them into a place where they feel better and make better decisions for themselves.
0: Mm. Well, I want to mention an example of here and today, and I've got permission to relay this example. One of my sisters who lives in Perth, Sonia, and I love you very much, She's listening. She's given us permission to share her story because she's hoping it will help some people. She's got a deep memory, body memory, of having her ears pierced as a child. She was probably two. It happened back in the old days, back in the old country in Europe, southern Europe, and the experience was hugely traumatic. Um, She obviously screamed a lot it was very very painful and this was inflicted on her by the people by my mother and grandmother without knowing the people whom she trusted in the world the people that were supposed to look after her and not hurt her and then later on when we were five and she had to be vaccinated before we immigrated to Australia she still has a very vivid memory of screaming her lungs out, of the pain of that huge needle and the insertion of the vaccine. And it's had a marked effect on her and her life, so much so that she's had a lot of distrust of authoritative figures and doctors and vaccines and needles. And she's been really struggling with this whole pandemic and vaccines, and she's working through that. And she's working to rebuild that trust but she's made the connections recently only recently we made the connections jointly where it comes from and it was like a light bulb moment yeah. for her and us and there must be a lot of people with that kind of similar experience what the reason why they're not trusting the experts in this field that have devoted their whole life to this like Professor Dyer that we've heard from who is very genuine he's gone into it for all the right reasons he wants to help and serve humanity so in this time of a crisis in his field why wouldn't we trust him somebody like him
1: well what I think was really wonderful was that when you interviewed him He was very honest. He didn't say he knew at all. And I think that is trustable. It's when people make big definitive statements, people query that. How can you be that certain? It's when you come from a place of saying this is what we know and this is what we don't know. I think that makes people feel more trusting. I think taking the time as you have, Fern, to actually talk to your sister and discuss with her where this um, fear of authority came from that's a really useful thing because trauma is one of those things and I'll give you an example you go for a bushwalk you get bitten by a green snake with pink spots you come out of that bushwalk you have to go to hospital you have to have anti-venom it's traumatic you nearly lose your life you don't then say oh I will only be frightened of a green snake with pink spots. Your brain wants to protect you. So it generalises. Slithery things become frightening. And I'm thinking of your sister. You know, you get needles with authority. It hurts. Something's going into your body. You're scared. You generalise that. You don't only say it was only for that at that time. It becomes a general fear Because your brain is wired to protect you. So it's interpreting danger everywhere to keep you safe. And a lot of my people that I see, you know, they're scared, for example, their children will be forcibly vaccinated. Why? Something happened to them where they were forcibly vaccinated or a child was removed or this happened. It comes from places that... Are real and valid for them and understanding it rather than telling them they're wrong is a much better way to go in my view
0: and how would you work with somebody like my sister through that process
1: look if it's um, confined to a couple of incidences I would actually get EMDR treatment. It's 80% effective. It's very good at disconnecting the event from the feeling. So you feel more relaxed. I would do creative visualization of where there, here comes the needle, what does it feel like? What could, we would reframe it and reconstruct it, recognizing where it comes from so that you turn on the frontal lobe, which says, ah, I'm not back there at five anymore. I'm an adult. I can tell them how I feel and what's going on. Bringing that back online. Relaxation, teaching the body to be relaxed while that is happening happening rather than being tense. There's many things you can do.
0: But really, you do need to work through it as it's in the body. Yes. Because the light bulb moment and knowing it is not not enough.
1: No, you need somatic work. Beautiful book, Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. The body remembers everything. The mind can trick you. Memory can play up, but the body is an accurate record of the things that have happened, and it needs to be worked with.
0: And just explain what you mean by somatic work for those that don't know about somatic experiencing.
1: It's going into the body, into the places, finding the safe places, working through how your body has stored it. It's layered work that involves using the body and its memory and its experience and its feelings to help inform and make deep visceral change.
0: So it's a process and it takes time. Just describe people that uh, come out the other side of that. What is the difference? What is the change?
1: They don't have the same implicit memory. An implicit memory is the body held memory. Their body is more relaxed. For example, I had a client a long time ago who had a injury and they carried their body in a way that was reminiscent of that injury they weren't conscious of it but the body was shaped in a way that was protective of protecting them from the injury and the body had become um, stressed and a little misshapen because of that when we could go back into that original injury and they could see how they were holding their body in a defensive posture and we could go in and relax the body and work with it the defensive posture changed and there was you know dramatic
0: improvement that's really interesting do you also develop more trust necessarily
1: I think so because your body's more relaxed and it doesn't hold tension and fear in the same way it feels comfortable inside and you feel at peace and more relaxed inside and more open literally because your defensive posture has now shifted
0: and the feelings that uh, other people want to do me harm does that get better as well
1: I have seen it get better because there's a sense of I'm okay, it's all okay. It returns to the body.
0: And that was something that happened then. What's happening now is very different.
1: Yes, and the, the body and the brain makes that distinction.
0: Now, I'm finding everyone retreating a bit. Well, that might change now that we're out of lockdown. But I, I know I was a bit. Uh, but even more so, people who don't hold... The consensus view; they seem to be feeling under siege. Is that what you're seeing?
1: Yes, they are feeling one out, um, disin you know, sort of removed, not understood. But I'm seeing it on both sides, actually. I'm seeing it on the side of people who have been vaccinated in terms of being called sheeples and being um, basically told they're idiots and puppets and all those sorts of things. And then I'm seeing um, rhetoric where other people are saying, if you don't get the vaccine and then you end up in hospital, you shouldn't be given medical treatment. And I think that's appalling. I think our aim is to be a community and to work with each other. And not to bring this kind of dialogue in, but to bring curiosity and understanding and support.
0: But are you concerned that this is going to get worse, though, as more people get vaccinated, the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated? And then when passports come in, travel passports or certificates for people that have it, I mean, it's really going to create a major divide, isn't it?
1: I fear so and one of my clients said it so beautifully. They said there's going to be medical apartheid and that really stopped me and made me think because is that what we want in this world? And, you know, I think there's a lot of um, thought and philosophical thinking we have to do on how we're going to manage that.
0: How do you think we can manage that so we don't go down that road?
1: I'm not sure yet. And the reason is I can only tell you how I'm going to manage it. And that's I'm not going to discriminate for me. People come and see me whether they're going to be vaccinated or not. I want to support people. And I, having grown up in Africa, I'm not a fan of apartheid.
0: So we've got to be mindful that we don't exacerbate and we don't contribute to this divide. Jane, I want to finish with something that I I want us to come back to in a future episode. It's something that I've been denying and struggling to come to terms with myself. And that is the almost undeniable fact that life will never be the same it will never go back to where it was before professor dominic dwyer said in my interview with him this coronavirus in its many variants will be with us for many years to come and health pandemics are here to stay now that's a pretty big thing for us to really accept and come to grips with isn't it
1: it's huge But I do want to say something about the resilience and adaptability of human nature. And I remember the pandemic, um, or sorry, epidemic of HIV and AIDS. We adapted. We got through it. We will have changes. As the Buddhists keep telling us, nothing is permanent. I'm more worried personally about climate change. I think it's going to be a whole lot easier to work with the virus and find a solution than it is to get a whole group of politicians to actually value and save our home Mother Earth.
0: Well, What came out of my conversation with Professor Dwyer is that The conversation we're having is a divisive conversation about whether vaccines work, whether this works, whether we should be doing this, whether it even is as bad as the scientists and medical profession is telling us it is. When the conversation we should be having, as Professor Dwyer alluded to at the end of my conversation with him, is scientists like him have been warning us for decades that this is coming, this was coming because of the way we are living on this planet. The way we're depleting our resources, climate change, the intrusion into the habitats of, of animals and rarer and our contact with rarer and rarer species. So this is the conversation it seems to me we should really be having. How do we really want to live on this planet in a way That's not going to lead to these pandemics and that's going to be sustainable and healthy for us and future generations. And we're not having that conversation.
1: No. And I think we are so blessed with the First Nation people here who are the custodians of this land and this beautiful country. We should be chatting to them and asking their advice. We should be asking them to come and tell us and educate us on how to do this better. And then you have to get governments and big business to stop pillaging and ravaging and actually start salvaging and caring and seeing that ultimately if we take every resource there will be nothing left and rather let's work together to make our home a habitable place
0: here here and more specifically in terms of the management of this whole pandemic what's your message for our political leaders and community leaders
1: get your shit show together (laughs) (laughs) that's you know come on the messaging has been divisive appalling inconsistent untrustable Literally, I've got a one-liner. Get your shit show together.
0: Absolutely. And an honest conversation with the community that treats them like adults and gets more of these people like Professor Dwyer, the actual experts in the field, to come and answer these questions and have a genuine, honest conversation with us. That will help our understanding more, won't it?
1: Absolutely. When you look at the way Jacinta Ardern handled New Zealand in her PJs at night, talking every night to the people of New Zealand, informing them. She didn't pretend she knew everything. She didn't come out as an authority. She came out as this is what we know so far. Let's all go to bed. And off she go went to bed in her pajamas. We need leaders who tell us the truth. I know it's wishful thinking but I am a big optimist. We need people who will sit down and say, look, I don't know that. This is what we do know. And this is how we're handling it. And this is why. And they should have a scientist like Professor Dwyer. They should have a health minister. They should have a group of people that update the community and inform them as we go and don't pretend that they've got it all sorted when they clearly haven't.
0: Here, here, but Gladys doesn't want to talk to us anymore. Well, not as much. In the meantime, let's all rejoice in our refound freedom with the end of the lockdown in our region in the next edition we're going to look at one of the manifestations of the heightened level of anxiety and stress we're all experiencing poor sleep why is sleep so important for our mental and overall health and how can we improve sleep looking forward to that jane enter our resident psychologist great speaking with you again thank you very much
1: Thank you Fern for having me back, it's a pleasure.